everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. There's a lot that happens around here that I don't know about, and that's the first time I've heard of Favsbiffs. That's awesome. Hey, I'm Zach. I'm one of the pastors here and delighted to get to jump into our message this morning. Um, I don't know, by show of hands, who here's done an escape room before? Is any, we clo- okay, good. Critical mass is what I was looking for. If you haven't done an escape room, the first time I did an escape room, we knew it was like this cool thing that you could do. And we walk in and we sit down with a 16-year-old kid who like knows the secrets to the world, right? Like this is the kid who's going to walk us through, here's the rules, here's how you solve it, blah, blah, blah. So we are, we are like rapt attention on this kid. And he's walking us through. And, and if you've never done an escape room, the whole idea is you walk into a room, they close the door behind you, and there's some mystery that needs to be solved. There's clues hidden everywhere, and you have to find these clues. But none of them make sense. Like you're just randomly trying different things. And, and so one of the things they tell you, this 16-year-old kid, he, he goes, so the most obvious things might mean nothing. And things that seemingly mean nothing might be the most important things. You just, you just don't want to look over anything at all. And so it's, it's me and a, a bunch of friends and, you know, we're, we're psyched. We've got one hour to solve this problem. We think we can do it. None of us have ever done this before. We walk into the room They shut the door. This timer comes up on this screen. 59 minutes and 59 seconds. And it's just going down. And so we're just frantic. Like, look everywhere. And we're opening these boxes and throwing over rugs and and finding just random stuff all over the place. And every now and again, I'm looking over at my friend Parker. And Parker's just staring at this thing above the door. And, And like, I trust Parker. He's sharp. So I'm like, okay, Parker's got that, whatever that is. I'm still looking and all. And so we're, we're putting these things together. And finally, we, we realize the clue that we're working on is you've got to find the, where X marks the spot. And Parker, like in this Captain Morgan moment, I know where the X is that marks the spot. Come with me. And we all walk over to this door that he's been standing at. And much like this door here, for the folks at home, you'll just have to imagine this. He goes, there, there it is right there. We go, Parker. That's the exit sign. That's, that's not a clue. That's part of fire code. Like keep look. But then we're so paranoid, we keep like checking it out of the corner of our eye. Like maybe there is something hidden there. But we eventually get out. But I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I think for me, sometimes trying to understand Scripture can feel like that. Like I can read it. I can see what's going on in the text. But trying to make sense of it, trying to make it all work together, can sometimes feel like I'm just throwing over rugs. I'm just... What is going on in the text? And I think especially today, if you're a skeptic, if, you've, if you're somebody who's like, I've been trying to check out this Jesus, trying to check out this whole Christianity thing, but every time I crack open the book, it just doesn't make that much sense. You are in good company. And I think if we're going to approach something as in, in brilliant as the Bible together, there needs to be a sense of like, there's elements of an escape room that have been built into this thing. If you look up what is an escape room, what does it do? Here's one pretty popular just paragraph that you'll find of what escape rooms are. Escape rooms involve teamwork, communication, and delegation, as well as critical thinking, attention to detail, and lateral thinking. Escape rooms can be played by a wide age range of players, and thriving teams are those that have players with a variety of, of experiences, skills, background knowledge, and physical abilities. 
Being live-action games taking place in the material world, escape rooms create ways for players to directly connect with one another as they cooperatively engage a challenge to overcome while leveraging each other's skills. It's a team sport. And what we're going to talk about today, we're, we're getting into a chunk of Jesus' teachings today that I don't, I don't know if there's anything that I could capture it better than that. It's just, just like that. And so we're finding ourselves today in Matthew 13. If you brought your Bible, you're going to be so glad that you did. If you didn't, don't worry about it. We're going to have everything on the screen. But we're going to be in Matthew 13 today. And Matthew 13, it's this moment where the writer, Matthew, who's writing the story of Je- it's Jesus' biography that he's essentially writing, but he's writing with purposes to everything. And for Matthew, when he sat down and wrote chapter 13, what's this going to be about? Decisively, he went, this one is going to be about parables. This one will be totally about things that Jesus taught in something called parables. And if you're like, what's a parable? We're going to get into that too. But this, this whole idea, it, 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 he's capturing all these weird side comments, side stories. In this chapter, if you would just do a quick cursory look, you're going to get a story about soil a story about weeds and wheat, a story about a mustard seed, a story about yeasty bread, buried treasure, a pearl salesman, and a fishing net. That's all chapter 13. And really, I think if you want to understand what Matthew's trying to do, he wants you to see something really important in this chapter. And this is where we're going to be camping out all day. The first thing is this. Why, what, what's, why, why is Jesus teaching in parables? It says this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus told the crowds all of these things in parables, and without a parable, he told them nothing. So Jesus is this Jewish rabbi, and if you're a Jewish rabbi, teaching in parables was a pretty normal thing. But this is saying all he taught in was parables, which then, if you're Matthew going, chapter 13, what am I going to write about? I'm going to write about what Jesus taught about. Well, here's all the parables. Here's, Here's his most famous ones. But then, as we're chipping away on what's a parable and what's the point of this thing, Jesus kicks off the chapter by going, here's a story about soil, and his disciples, which was totally normal at the time, his followers, his students, he would finish telling one of these stories, and they go, okay, what does that mean? And he explains it to them, but in the midst of explaining to them, if you would jump over to Matthew chapter 13, verse 13, Jesus says this, The reason I speak to them, to everybody, the reason why I teach people in parables is that in seeing they do not perceive, and in hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. Which is super troubling, right? Like Jesus is this teacher, he's this rabbi. Matthew says, the first thing we read, all he taught in was parables, but then we asked him, Jesus, why do you teach in parables? He basically said, I teach in parables because they're confusing. It's like, you're a terrible teacher then. Like, that's just not, that's not how we do it. And, and I think it's so important as we begin setting the stage for what we're going to dive into today, this is not Western culture. This is Eastern culture. In the West and where we live in the United States, if you're going to teach something, a teacher has a syllabus, there's target points, there's something you're going to be doing at the end of a class that kind of sums up the whole thing. But they're going to teach you something, you're going to regurgitate it back, they're going to make sure that you got the knowledge that they're trying to get across, and then we're going to move on. And in the East, in Eastern culture, education's wildly different because the whole idea is I want to ask you a question. As the teacher, I will ask you a question. And I want that question to not be something where you just parrot that question back to me. I'm sending you on a journey. 
I want you to go discover something because I know as a teacher, if you discover it for yourself, the journey is, is at least half of the process of learning. It's all about discovery. And so again, if you're somebody in the room who you're like, I've read some of this stuff before and none of it makes sense. I, I just want to qualm your anxiety a little bit. It was actually designed that way. And if you're like, then that feels like God is playing hide and seek with me and that hits one of the most tender places in my story, I would tell you this. Six chapters ago in Matthew 7, Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount. It's his most famous sermon that he ever gave. And one of the things that he said that we camped out on a little while with is he says, you know what? Ask and you'll find. Or seek and you'll find. Ask and it will be given to you. God is not trying to hide. He's not being coy. But kind of like an escape room, he's going, if you want to know me, if you want to understand my teaching, if you want to know what I'm about, you have to go on a journey of discovery. And I will not hide from you on that journey. But you have to go on the journey. And if you're here today going, yes, that's what I've been trying to do, I hope today is such a good gift to you. Okay, we've been talking about this thing, parables. What's a parable? If you look it up in Mer Merriam-Webster, this is what it'll say. Definition of a parable, a usually short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. This seems pretty straightforward. So, so they're little stories. It's like a little metaphor that somebody's giving. It should be pretty easy to understand. So let's look at an example. <laughs> Jesus tells a parable in one verse. Here's one of them, Matthew 13, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. That's it. Like, that's the end. That's the end of the story. Like, at some point you're going, okay, Yoda, like, what are you talking about? That makes no, the kingdom of heaven is like bread. If you're gluten intolerant and you just heard that the kingdom of heaven is a giant baguette, you're like, what's happening right now? This doesn't make any sense. And it's not supposed to right away. There, there's things in here that it would make you wonder, like, are you saying we should be making bread for people? <laughs> are you saying that yeast makes bread better so we should be using more yeast? Are you saying that yeast infects flour in a loaf of bread so the kingdom of heaven should infect things? And why three measures of flour? And for those of you that are in a life group, one of the questions, it's like an extra credit bonus question I put at the bottom, but why three measures of flour? There's, there's just these little things. If you were in an escape room and there was a giant three painted on the floor, something about you would walk around that going, why is that there? Why a three? And I've got some hints for those in life groups. And if you want to, if you're like, I'm not in a life group and now you've got me going, what's the question? Come find me afterwards. I would love, I'm, I'm just nerding out and having a great time with it. It's so great. But it's not straightforward. Merriam-Webster says these are stories. They're trying to communicate a moral attitude. What's my moral attitude about yeast? <laughs> like, that's weird. They're trying to convey a religious principle. I'm lost on the religious principle talking about three measures of flour. What's the point? And if we're going to understand it, we have to put on some Jewish goggles and go, how would Jewish people, how would people sitting under a rabbi, how would his followers have heard this? And we're at a major deficit in the West because most of us are not Jewish. And if you are, you're probably a Jewish person who has grown up in Western culture. So you don't know about something called pardes. 
I'm going to put this up on the screen, but this, this is a tool that I want to give you today. And I'm, I'm not a huge like, whip out your phone and take a picture of this one type of guy. But this might be something, if, you want to, if you're a note taker or if you just want to pull something out, Pardes, this is going to be something I think you're going to want to look up after this morning. It's, it's, this captures, it's a whole tool that I'm giving you right here. Pardes is an acronym. It's kind of like, what was it for the women's retreat? Bab Fibs or whatever. It's the, whoever wrote, wrote those two acronyms wrote them the same. Um, it starts with these steps. This is how you understand a parable. Step one, it's called Peshat. And this is where you just, you're going to read something and you're going to go, okay, what's the basic on the surface meaning of that thing? It's usually the most obvious thing, the most obvious meaning that you can pull out. Then, and, and it, it's, you got to go through these in steps. It's like engineering a little bit. The next step is called remez. And this means hints. This is used for the allegoric, the hidden or symbolic meaning beyond the literal sense. This is the giant three painted on the floor. Why is that there? What's going on there? And then the third step is called darash. It means to inquire or to seek. As you're beginning to understand all these allegories and the things going on, why are they there? And you're beginning to put together those pieces. And quite frankly, if it's left up to me, this is where um, interpreting parables would probably stop. But it's a spiritual practice, not just a literary one. And so the final step of pardes is called sod. And these are all Jewish words. That's the little squiggles that are next to him. And sod really stands for secret or mystery. And it really exposes this truth that I love, that God speaks today to you and to me. And I don't, I think the order of this is important. I think you have to understand what's actually going on in the text. You can't just make up the voice of God. But as you're understanding the voice of God, these things flow together where now as you're understanding, I've got the surface level meaning, I've got some of the clues, I'm understanding what the clues mean, it begins to open you up to the spirit of God in a way where now he's speaking to you. It's, it's beautiful. And you might be like, that sounds really mystical and weird. That's okay. It's, you can call it weird. It is a little weird. Um, just for fun, there's this part that we'll get to later in Matthew where Jesus is turning to his followers and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, here's who the crowd say that you are. And Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, I know, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you just got a little sprinkle of sowed. The Holy Spirit of God revealed that to you. Well done, follower. It's really cool. Okay, I'm coming at you hot and fast with a lot of material, but we're going to take this apart piece by piece and look at one of these parables and try and understand what on earth is going on. So, again, if you brought your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 13. We're going to start in verse 31, and this parable is only two verses, and it's not the yeast one. This is a totally new one. But we're going to go through these steps. And remember, Peshat, this is just the surface level reading. What do you see the first time we read through this? What do you go, I think this might be what he's getting at. And then we'll start going through these steps together on what's actually going on in this teaching of Jesus. My, my hope, y'all, as we go through this, is that Jesus, who's seemingly at the beginning of this time, talking about yeast and weird stuff, threes on the floor, hopefully becomes something that you go, this, this dude's just brilliant. Even if you're like, I don't agree, or this seems like really weird how he put it all together, I hope that as you see how he does put it together, you go, wow, I didn't know that that's all that was going on there. Matthew 13, starting in verse 31. He put before them another parable, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. All right. The obvious meaning. What do you think he means by this? You just store that in your head. We're not going to call that out. But some of the things I wonder if you're thinking is, okay, it seems like an obvious meaning is the kingdom of heaven, the way that Jesus talks about how the world should be. It's an idea that starts out super small, but then it grows into something super big. That would be an awesome rendering of this story. Maybe you're thinking about it as uh, it's some, there's something about the man who's sowing the seed that it's all about the one who initiates and starts this whole story to begin with, that he might seem foolish because the thing that he's planting is so small, but that he's actually, he's brilliant because what he does is he grows something massive. Maybe that's where you go. And all of these steps as you're going through Pardes are so important that you hang on to because there are moments and flashes of brilliance that just from a cursory quick reading will show up later and you'll go, oh my goodness, that's incredible. But if we're going to move through to the next step, to this ramez part, what's the allegorical meaning? This now, uh, do we have any mustard farmers in the room? Anybody here grow? Okay, great. I assumed that. Um, And the real um, dig on this is nobody is a mustard farmer. (laughs) That's, mustard's weird. Here's a picture. um, If you would look up Conejo Valley, this is outside Thousand Oaks, California. Uh, This is some hillsides that grow near them. It's beautiful. This is black mustard that grows in these hills. And one of the things on their, on their website for Conejo Valley is like, man, you gotta come this time of year because the flowers just pop this beautiful yellow. And as you keep reading through, they're like, we also really hope that our mitigation teams can get in front of it because it grows so quickly and so tall and then it dries out and then the wildfires come through in the highlands of California and they destroy, it destroys everything. But the wild thing about this is this is an invasive species. If you're in the crowd hearing Jesus tell this story about a farmer planting mustard, you'd be like, this fool's crazy. You don't plant mustard in a farm because mustards, mustard seeds are invasive, toxic weeds. You cannot stop them from growing. My mom planted mint in her backyard like 40 years ago. She cannot now get rid of the mint in her backyard. It's kind of like that, only it's worse because mustard seeds, when they start growing, they release a chemical that prevents the germination of any other plant growing around them. Man, if you're, that might be enough that you're like, I'm good on today, I'm heading home. Think about how that could relate to the kingdom of heaven. Goodness, that's amazing. They grow into this small bush. They, they produce these yellow flowers. If you've ever had like the um, real seedy mustard, like a good German mustard, this is the type of seed that's growing in there that knocks out. But, but they can grow to be about 10 foot high. In Conejo Valley, they grow to be about eight feet high. And the birds would love it for both its shade and eating its seeds, but it's a bush. Like you probably wouldn't see birds roosting in this thing. For sure not big birds. So, In this story, as Jesus is telling it, for a farmer to intentionally plant a mustard seed in his field, either he is an idiot or he's up to something. You would only do this intentionally. You would not do this by accident. And you would want to have a lot of mustard for a long time. And likely, you would want your neighbors to have mustard and you'd want your neighbor's neighbors to have mustard. 
phenomenal. Like these are some of the clues that are now hidden in our escape room. These are the giant threes on the floor that as you start to hear those, you go, oh, okay. So it's not just any old seed that gets planted. This is a weird seed. And to an agricultural community that's used to growing wheat and all these different things, it's a kind of an offensive seed, actually. It's done on purpose. Jesus is trying to tease out something in us. And then we go one step further. Oh, my gosh. And any little Jewish boy or girl growing up in this community, especially at this day and age, you would have whole sections of the Old Testament, the whole beginnings of the Bible just memorized. And so if somebody were to quote a story, right away you would connect the dots. And this is not something that we do nearly enough in our culture today. And, and I think this would be a story that it, it, you might have caught on. He's talking about a, a shrub. He's talking about a mustard bush. But then all of a sudden this mustard bush turns into this gigantic tree. What transformed there? And I strongly believe, I've, this popped out in a couple commentaries this week, the original audience right away would have been like, oh, Ezekiel 17. He's talking about Ezekiel 17. Which there's no way in heck I could have connected Ezekiel 17 on my own. But if you turn to Ezekiel 17, we'll get there in just a second. We're going to start in verse 22, but let me sum it up for us. Ezekiel is this prophet in the Old Testament years before Jesus. And there has been this hostile takeover. Israel is our main character. That's, that's our country. That's where these Jewish people come from. But Babylon, who's kind of the bad guy, has come in and they've taken Israel's king and its nobles captive and it's taken them away. And they've taken the prince and they've risen him up as a puppet king. And they made him vow this promise that he would not rise up or retaliate against Babylon. And as long as that was the case, all men to their corners were all fine here. So this vow lasts for a little while, but then all of a sudden this, this young king, Zedekiah, gets this idea, I could actually reach out to Egypt because they're kind of like another you know, schoolyard bully. And if I can convince them to come fight for us and start a war with Babylon, maybe I can get my dad and our nobles and our country back. And so he sneaks over to Egypt and he tries to push this deal through. And God is ticked because Zedekiah made a vow. He made a promise. He made a promise in Israel in sight of God with God's name on his honor as the king of Israel. And when he tries to shuffle the deck and do this super shady thing, God is not having it. So God then, it, it just it ends in utter disaster. The kingdom of God, Israel, ends up just getting destroyed. So Ezekiel is this prophet who's coming in during this time, and prophets oftentimes were given parables to share with the people around. And so Ezekiel rolls in at this time, and he starts telling the story about a tree. It's a cedar of Lebanon. These, these were in this region. These were the tallest trees that you can imagine. They're cedar trees. And, and the parable that he says is there's this eagle that came along and it snapped off the top of this tree and it carried it away to a faraway land. Which just to make super clear, this tree of Lebanon is Israel. And this eagle is a foreign king that has come in and he's taken the king of, this, of, this, of Israel and he's taken him back to a foreign land. And he plants him there. And this is all just the beginning. This isn't even what we're going to get into. But then there's another eagle that comes along, Egypt. And, and this, this tree that started to grow where the old tree used to be starts to turn towards Egypt. And it just gets destroyed. 
And God comes in for a quick interlude and he makes it really clear to Zedekiah, the problem is that you broke your promise. And then it says this in Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig. Okay, first off, I myself. There's no eagles involved in the snapping of twigs here. This is God now saying, I will be the one to do it. Keep in mind, the tree represents God's people. Eagles, at this point, have represented foreign kings, foreign kingdoms, foreign people. I will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar. I will set it out. I will break off a tender one from the topmost of its young twigs. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it in order that it may produce boughs and bear fruit and become a noble cedar. Under it, every kind of bird will live. In the shade of its branches will nest winged creatures of every kind. All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and I make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will accomplish this. And then several years later, we get a rabbi sitting on a hill in Israel who says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and he sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And if you're in the original audience and you know these stories right away, you're going, oh, he's talking about Ezekiel 17. He's talking about how the kingdom of God has been taken hostage, but that God has promised that someday he's going to come back and he's going to plant his own twig. And that twig, something so tiny, something so small, he will make to be noble. And he won't just make that to be noble. This story is not only about this tree. It's not only about God's people and God's kingdom. It's still about the birds. Because now these eagles that have represent foreign kings and foreign kingdoms and foreign people, Jesus is so clearly saying, there's room in this tree for everyone. Every kind of bird will have a home in this tree. And, and you, like these things just start to collide where you're going, okay, then why did he start with a mustard seed if he's going to end with a cedar? And I think this now begins to involve some of the artistry of what it means to be a storyteller and a parable teller. Because Jesus is going, well, cedars are kind of simple. They kind of just, you know, grow straight up. But there's an extra element I want to make sure that you understand about what God's kingdom is like, what his people are like, what it means to follow him. Because it does infect. <laughs> it, does, it does tend to get around. There's this element to it that things that are trying to grow that are not a part of that kingdom, it will eventually choke those things out. And it might dry up and cause fires in the wrong settings. But just like, I mean, these are just whispers. You can just hear Jesus. You can see the twinkle in his eyes. He's telling this story. He's going, but don't forget Ezekiel 17, that the dry things he makes new and green, and the green things he makes dry, and now, all of a sudden, this story just became so much more full in what Jesus is trying to do here. It's as if he's saying, if you want to know what the kingdom is like, it starts with me, Jesus. It starts with rest. What are the birds doing? They're just resting. They found shade. They found a place to stop 
for a minute and just enjoy. As a quick aside, I just love, we started out this year, this calendar year, just really drilling down this idea of Sabbath. This is so important to Jesus. Rest. If you want to know me and what it's like, it starts with rest and it starts with fruit. Good things grow that sustain people, all people, every kind of person. It provides rest for the soul that every one of us is searching for. And I want everyone to have it. I'll plant it in my field first, but I want this thing to go global. I'm doing this with great intention and great hope. This is not by accident or a we'll see how it goes. It looks backwards. Things that appear to be deathly, forgiving your enemies, living a self-sacrificial life, choosing to be a servant, putting yourself second, caring for the widows and the orphans and the homeless and the marginalized, all become the ways to experience life to the full, dry things that become green. And these dead things that are around, that seem green, that seem to promise life, money, possessions, power, they will only lead to hollowness, to a dry and withered life. This kingdom that I'm establishing will not be corrupt. It doesn't go back on its promises. It will not break a vow. And it's exactly what God has always wanted. He has done this. And not because of the planning of an earthly king, but because this is what God has always wanted to do. We're going to get into the sowed a little bit later when we prepare for communion. Um, and there's more. There's so much more on every single one of these things. But each one of these parables that Jesus does in Matthew 13 will take you on a similar journey. A journey deeper into the text a journey deeper into the heart of God, a journey deeper into your calling and deeper into life. It's intentionally put in a place where only those who really want to seek it will find it. But as Jesus promised in chapter seven, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open. He's not playing hide and go seek. He's beckoning you on a journey towards him. I'm going to bring out the band as I land the plane on my part of today. But this process is so much better when you're doing it as a team. It's a big part of our values here at Discovery, these values of sharing and growing and connecting. These are actually all escape room type things. And if I could say it in a different way for our church, I would say it like this. Connecting with God involves teamwork, communication, and delegation, as well as critical thinking, attention to detail, and lateral thinking. Connecting with God can be played by a wide age range of players, and thriving teams are those that have players with a variety of experiences, skills, background knowledge, and physical abilities. Being live-action games taking place in the material world, connecting with God creates ways for players to directly connect one with the other as they cooperatively engage a challenge to overcome while leveraging each other's skills. Life is challenging. It's like an escape room. But to finish... It's not only successful to solve the puzzle, but to thrive alongside the people that you're doing it with. This fall, we're going to be offering some classes. You heard Jen talk about it in the announcements today. And these classes we have developed so that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, there's something for you. Uh, they'll be on the screen behind me right now, but I would love to invite you to do two things with these. The first, I would love for you to come to one of these. They're intentionally short. Mo I think the average range is about eight weeks long. You can miss one or two. You won't get kicked out. 
but it's just this opportunity to go, I want to sit in a small room of people, and I want to open up some text, or I want to open up an idea, and I want to leverage people's experiences. I want to address the three on the floor that I stare at and get some help figuring out what that means. I, I need water for my soul. I want to grow. There's more to this life, and to do it on my own, I just know that's not happening. I, I would love for you to figure out what are you going to go to. And the second thing is this. Are there people in your life, whether they go to church here or not, that you would say, I want to do this alongside them? And would you invite them? These classes will be on our website. You can get to them from the QR code at the bottom. But again, Matthews, he gets to chapter 13, and he starts writing, goes, what am I going to make this chapter about? Oh, parables. Parables that lead back to a story that will take you on a journey of discovery blow your mind. Chapter 13 is going to be all about Jesus, this incredible teacher. And, and you're just, you're going to be wowed by the way that he taught, the stuff that he connected together. And it won't just be cool Bible stuff. If you dig in, this is, this is about you and God and us and God. There's more to this story. If you're able, we're going to take some time right now, both individually and in a corporate room full of people, to stand and to sing and to worship this God. You can stand if you're able.